Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in chapter 6 of Revelation, where we've been wrapping up our study of the horsemen, knowing that time is short, and asking the question, do you believe? So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. Well, look on. He goes on. He says in verse 9, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the Word of God and for their testimony which they held. So they're slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. So here's the fifth seal. At this point, we no longer see any more riders emerging. But with the opening of this seal, we do find some incredibly horrific events being put into motion on the earth. Here, John sees a great slaughter, he describes, a great slaughter that will be taking place during the tribulation period. This is not a slaughter. Uh, uh, this is, it is a slaughter of the earth dwell, or not a slaughter of the earth dwellers. It's not a slaughter, as we were talking about before, of the, of the unbelievers. He's not talking about that here. This is a slaughter of God's people. This is a slaughter of God's people. Now, from our previous studies, we know that the Antichrist will be waging war against who? Against the Jews, right? We know that. At the three and a half year mark, he's going to march into that temple. He's going to be demanding to be worshipped as God. And their eyes are going to be opened. And they're going to refuse that worship. And in that moment, he's going to turn his sights on them like it's going to surpass anything that Hitler ever did. And we'll get to that later on. Because the, the Bible even tells us what percentage will even be affected and killed because of what he'll do. So he'll be waging war against the Jews. But here we learn that he'll also be waging war against all who have placed their faith in Christ during that period, and I say that with emphasis, during that period of come to faith, during that period of time. Now, later in Revelation, we're going to find that the greatest awakening, maybe the greatest awakening in history to Jesus Christ, is going to occur during the tribulation. Even though everybody's going to go, you know, everybody that goes into the tribulation will be unbelievers. Everybody that goes in there, let there be no doubt, everyone that enters the tribulation period will be unbelievers because all believers who are alive just before the tribulation begins, guess where we're going to be? We're going to be with the Lord. We're going to be taken out because we're not appointed to wrath and judgment. We're going to be removed from the earth. We're going to escape God's judgment. But in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, John is going to tell us something that he sees. He says this in Revelation 7, verse 9. A great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It is absolutely clear that there will be an awakening to Christ like the world has never seen before that will take place in the midst of God's judgment upon the earth. Men and women will be coming to faith in Christ during the tribulation. But it's also clear from this passage and elsewhere that those who come to faith in Christ and take a stand for him during this period will undergo intense persecution with a significant number of them dying for their faith because Antichrist and the world that's been influenced by the Antichrist spirit will not tolerate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And together, Antichrist, his followers, they're going to launch a worldwide campaign to eradicate Christianity and to eradicate Christians from the face of the earth. 
It's not, the, the point is, it's not that people can't come to Christ once the tribulation begins, but it's that there will be a high cost to pay for coming to faith in Christ once the tribulation begins. You know, when you look at our world today, and we see it even in our own nation, it's growing. This antichrist spirit is already at work and it's growing. We see this kind of stuff beginning to happen in parts of the world. I mean, outside the U.S., in parts of the world, to commit your life to Christ and to take a public stand for him in those places. You know what that is? It's a death sentence. It's a death sentence at the hands of Christ-rejecting, Christ-hostile men and women and governments. They, they don't want them there. They want to get rid of them, and they're after them. And the trend, I will tell you honestly, that trend seems to be growing worldwide, and it's spreading rapidly. Even here in America, to commit your life to Christ and to take a stand for him is becoming more and more costly. I've said to you before, you know, I came to faith in Christ back during the Jesus movement time when it was cool to become a Christian. You know, the world didn't see it as, I mean, they thought we were a little weird. We were Jesus freaks. But the truth is, it was almost cool to do that. I remember, you remember the, how many of you guys remember Jimmy Carter getting elected, right? What was the big thing with Jimmy Carter? Born again. He was born again. You know, I was, I like that term, by the way. I think it's a very biblical term. I like that better than saying I'm saved. I'm born again. I think it depicts exactly what's happened to us. But remember, Jimmy Carter did that. And of course, you know, it was just, yeah, we voted for him because JC was in the name. Oh, it's just like Jesus Christ, you know? Yeah, well, well, that doesn't work out too well. But, um, (laughs) but, you know, it, it was cool. But today, it's not the same spirit. There's something different here. Yes, the, the world in a lot of ways is kind of the same. I mean, we're like the 60s, the back end of the 60s on steroids now in our country, you know? And that was the back end of the 60s too when the Jesus movement kind of broke out. But you know what? In our world today, it's completely different. It's like even with that, that similarity, there's a difference. The world knows enough about Christianity to not want any part of it, any part of it. And not only are they willing to allow you to believe what you believe and to freely express it, they want you silenced. We've not seen that that level before here in this country. I'm just telling you, the Antichrist spirit is growing. Where that's going to go in our country, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't predict. I don't know. You know, on one hand, I, I think it probably will not reach levels that we see in other parts of the world. You're being killed for your faith. But you know what? You don't have to be killed but for your faith in order to be persecuted for your faith and to be faced with very difficult choices. What happens when you have to, to renounce what you believe in order to be hired for a job? What are you going to do? What are you going to do when that comes? And I do think that will come one day. We're already seeing it happen in workplaces. How about the guy, I don't know his name, but how about the, the, the chief of the fire department in Atlanta that was released simply because he was doing a Bible study on his own time with people. They didn't want him there. They got rid of him. I'm telling you, this stuff is growing in our world today. But, and it's just another sign of the time in which we live. This Antichrist spirit is preceding Antichrist when he comes. But in that day, when he does come, when he comes, and this stuff is in full bloom that we're talking about here, when it's not even a shadow like it is now, but it's just exploded everywhere, there will not be any closet Christians, as there sadly are today, especially in America. I think there's a lot of closet Christians today compromising Christians today. Those who accept Christ during the tribulation, they're going to be known. 
they're going to be known. They'll be known because one of the requirements of becoming a follower of Christ in that day will be to refuse the things that Antichrist will be putting in place, such as, as refusing the mark. You know, I know everybody gets all worked up when they see something over microchips or something else, and the government talking about doing his identity. Oh, we're going to be faced with the mark. Trust me, you will not be faced with that choice. You won't be here when that choice comes. But when that choice comes in that day, it's going to be more than just something as simple as, as getting a chip so they can identify. It's going to be an act of loyalty. It's a demand of loyalty. The scriptures clearly indicate that. These people who will take that mark will clearly know what they're doing. That they're ascribing their loyalty to the Antichrist and his system. But he's going to, he's going to require that, and true believers will refuse it in that day to, to their point of death. They'll be willing to do it knowing full well that it's probably going to lead to death. All sorts of things that are put in place will force them to be identified as Christians. And we'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 13 and 14. But make no mistake, becoming a Christian that day is going to mean taking a public stand for Jesus. And that stand, will most, for most people, it's going to cost them their lives. That's what this event is depicting here. The slaughter of believers that will be taking place as the Antichrist in the world wages war against them. It's also interesting to note that the reference here to their souls being under the altar is a reference taken from a passage in Leviticus where it describes how the priest, after killing the sacrifice and, and, and di- after dipping his finger in the blood and sprinkling it over the altar, how he would pour the remainder of the blood of the sacrifice at the base of the altar. Leviticus 4.7 tells us, And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting, and he shall pour the remaining blood of the bull at the base of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now, this ritual speaks of a, a sacrificial offering being made to God. But the the blood speaks of the sacrifice's life being poured out as an offering before God. This was a ritual that was ultimately fulfilled by whom? Jesus Christ, right? Jesus fulfilled this. He was the ultimate sacrifice that these animal, ancient animal sacrifices, they all pointed to and they all foreshadowed. He was the ultimate sacrifice whose lifeblood was poured out as an offering to God, an offering that atoned for the sins of men once and for all. It was Jesus' blood that was sprinkled over the altar and it was his blood that was poured out at its base, just as Hebrews chapter 9 tells us he did. But here we find that in this day, it'll be the blood of these believers that'll be poured out in a similar manner. Although theirs isn't an offering on the same level or a sacrifice on the same level as Jesus's is, theirs is still going to be an offering and a sacrifice nonetheless as an offering and a sacrifice that in many ways is very similar to what Jesus did. Their death, like Jesus's death, is an offering to God as they too have refused to bow to the desires of the world and to live a life apart for God alone. Even in the midst of a corrupt and and, and a sinful world that's seeking to dominate them, they'll willingly give their lives to God rather than becoming like the rest of the world. Oh man, we should be doing that even now ourselves. You know? But instead what we find is the church being pressured and what the church does instead of becoming that willing sacrifice becomes a willing compromise in order to maintain the peace. We should be like this even now, to simply say, no, I will not conform. No, I will not compromise. No, I will not give up anything that would cast a shadow of doubt on my Savior. I will not do that. I will take my stand regardless of what it costs me. 
And also in that day, their sacrifice is going to be in the same sense like Jesus in that they're dying for the sake of others as well, just as Jesus did. They're going to be dying because they've willingly chosen to take a stand and to bring a witness of Christ to a lost and dying world in the final days of human history. Though they will have counted the cost and chosen to give their lives in exchange for sharing the gospel with those around them who need to hear it. And so too, in this way, their lives now become the blood poured out at the base of the heavenly altar, just as John is seeing here. You know, I got to tell you, as I, I read this, I'm overwhelmed by the darkness of it all. But at the same time, I'm overwhelmed by the light and the hope that this passage is given. I mean, it's dark. I mean, there's no way around it. It's dark in that I realize that, that few who accept Christ in that day, our brothers and sisters, though we don't know who they are, that live in that day, few of them are going to survive. Few of them are going to survive. And that's dark. I mean, think about it. A person who makes a decision to, following, to follow Jesus during the tribulation will, in effect, be signing his or her death warrant in that moment. You know, I've often heard people talk about how, you know, they, they understand the gospel, they, they, they hear what it says, they actually believe what it says, but they're not willing to accept Jesus into their lives right now. They're concerned about what it's going to cost them right now. I'll wait a little. And you know what? I've even heard people say, well, I'll wait until I see these things come to pass or I find myself in the tribulation and then I'll accept Jesus. Listen to me very carefully. If you can't accept Jesus now while you're not under this, do you think it's going to be easier to accept him when you know that to do that, you pretty well will sign away your life. You're going to die. You know, I talk to you guys about dying to self. I don't say to any of you, hey, accept Jesus, because after you do that, though, you've got to be ready because you're going to go out the doors and somebody's going to be waiting for you with an axe to, to hack your head off. These guys, I say to you, die to self. These guys are going to have to die to self and die to themselves physically because that's what they're going to face. So if anyone you talk to, or maybe you're even here this morning, you've never accepted Christ, and you're just waiting and waiting and waiting and figure you'll do it when the time comes, you may find that that's going to be very difficult for you to make that choice in that day. Hmm. The cost will be astronomical to accept Christ. That's why there's no better time to accept Jesus than right now. Now is the time. Now is the day of salvation. But I also see great hope in this dark passage because what's being described here. I mean, think about this passage reveals that there will be people who are going to accept Jesus even in this dark period of history. There's going to be a multitude that will accept him, that will count the cost and will decide it's worth paying and they will accept Jesus. And when you consider the fact that the tribulation begins, when it begins, there will be no Christians found anywhere on the planet because all of us will be gone. It's quite remarkable to see that such a multitude will be raised up in such a short period of time and that they'll take a stand for Christ in the midst of that darkness of the world in that time. You know, it does tell us how quickly God can move on a people and on hearts, how quickly he can break through with the gospel. But I find this incredibly encouraging because it tells me, number one, that the tribulation isn't just about God's wrath and judgment. It's still about salvation. It's still about salvation. God will still be seeking and trying to lead men and women to himself. He'll still be offering salvation to them. He won't be so consumed by his own wrath and judgment against mankind that he'll close the window of salvation to anyone who's truly seeking it. Just consider what that means to your life right now. If God's going to do this during the most sinful and dark time in human history, it should tell you that there is nothing you can do that will cause him to close that window to you now or to your friends or your loved ones. 
You know, you've heard me say often, the very people that I would think that there's no way God could ever save them. They're too far gone. They're too deeply entrenched in their sin. There is no way he could save them. They're the very people that God oftentimes turns their hearts and they come to him. They come to him. It should give us hope. Secondly, it's encouraging because it tells us that the Holy Spirit, even though his role will be significantly different, you know, we, we try to get this idea of what the Holy Spirit's role will be because we know from Thessalonians that the restrainer is going to be removed and we know the restrainer is the Holy Spirit in the presence and work of his church will be gone. The, the, the relationship that we now have as new covenant believers with the Spirit where he's taken up resident in our hearts, he's doing all these things with us, will not be the same in that day. And oftentimes we relate it to an Old Testament Testament relationship that, that, that people had with the Spirit, right? The Spirit would come upon people for a purpose and a time, but he was active. I don't know if it's even going to be like that. We don't know what the role of the Spirit will be in that day, but we do know this. If men and women are coming to Christ, then the Holy Spirit will be active and present still. He may not be restraining as he's doing now through the presence of the church, but he'll still be active and working in that day. I like that because you know what? The scriptures tell us that we can't find salvation apart from God's spirit at work. He's an instrument in it all. And so he's the one that opens our eyes to Jesus. He's the one that reveals spiritual truth to us. He's the one that woos us and calls upon us. Yeah, we choose, but he's at work constantly trying to bring men and women there. So we know, we know that if people are coming to Christ, the spirit's still there and working. Third, it's encouraging to me because it tells me that men will still be open to Jesus despite the darkness that's taking place. This verse makes clear that there will be those who accept Christ. What's even more awesome is that these will be truly committed believers and not the wishy-washy kind of believers that's so common today. These will be sold out, over the top, willing to give everything up for Jesus kind of believers that will be present in that day. That old adage about, you don't want to get too crazy for Jesus. Trust me, these guys will be insane for Jesus. They're going to be insane for him. As we, uh, as we already discussed, the conditions that will exist won't allow for anything less. Jesus' words in that day are absolutely going to be true. Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 24 and 25, they're going to be more true for them than any generation of believers that has ever lived. What's he say in Matthew 16, 24? Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's going to be true of them more than any other generation of believers that has ever lived. In that day, self-denial will be an absolute and death will be a requirement to finding true life. Most of us don't really know or comprehend what it is to lay our lives down. Not really. I, I don't. I don't fully comprehend it yet. I'm working at that daily, you know, to understand what it means to truly lay my life down. I mean, we give a few things up. We, we, we change our schedules, you know, to accommodate something spiritual. We rearrange a few things in our lives to accommodate Jesus, and we think we're laying down our lives. But do we really know what it is to pick up our cross and to lay our lives upon it? Do we really know? I can't. I mean, I'll be honest. I, I, for one, cannot say that I fully do, that I understand that fully. I know that these, there are those in our world who do know. I know that there are I, those who, who sacrifice everything, and many of whom even pay the ultimate price to do, to come to Christ, willing to suffer persecution, willing to give their physical lives for Christ. These are believers in our world today who can fully understand and relate to what Jesus is saying However, most of us, especially in America today, we don't understand this. 
We don't understand this in our lives because in the world in which we lives, live, our lives are relatively untouched by these kinds of things. We're not in a position where we have to make these kinds of choices. We think we've laid down our lives for Jesus when someone mocks us or, or rejects us because of our faith or when we choose to give up our favorite TV show to, or sporting event to fill some, fulfill some spiritual commitment of some kind. I've suffered for Jesus this week. No, we don't comprehend it. When this day comes that Revelation 6 is describing to us, there won't be a Christian anywhere in the world that will not understand this. There will be persecution and death everywhere. And the cost to the believer will be persecution and death. A price that this verse is telling us very clearly that these future saints will be willing and gladly to pay. Huh. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held, that sense of firm holding on to, I will not let go. I will not compromise. I will not hide. I will not run away. I will not deny. I will hold. Verse 10, and they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. John now hears these martyrs, these saints crying out for justice. They're crying out for vengeance. Although we know that the scriptures teach that we're not to avenge ourselves, it is also not wrong for us to desire and to cry out to God to take vengeance for the wrongs that have been done to us at the hands of sinful men. In fact, we find cries for vengeance in a number of places in Scripture. Genesis 4.10 tells us that Abel's blood cried out for vengeance for the wrong done against him by his brother Cain. Numbers 35.33 speaks of the cries of vengeance by the blood of God's people who were wrongfully murdered. Cries for vengeance are not wrong so long as the cry for vengeance is made to the only one who has the right to take vengeance on our behalf. As Paul so clearly tells us in Romans 12, 9, Be- Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. When we leave our vengeance in the hands of the Lord, it shifts our focus away from those who've wronged us, and it puts us on the Lord in whom we'll trust. And what it says is, I trust you to deal with this in your time, in your way, when you're ready, and as it's appropriate. So when something, someone does something wrong to me or to you, we, 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 instead of getting angry at that person, you know, instead of getting our pound of flesh against them, we can take it to the Lord and, and, and we don't have to deny how we feel. We can tell him exactly how we feel. But in doing that, what, we're, what we want to do is be willing to lay it at his feet and put it in his hands and let it to him to make that determination. And then in the meantime, we get to do what the scriptures tell us is right for us to do because Romans 12 goes on in verse 19 and it says this, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's the Lord's part. We take it to him. He promises to do that. But here's what he tells us to do. Therefore, verse 20, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap cold of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I mean, I think we'd all agree. One of the hardest things to do in life is to do that for somebody that's wronged us. It's, it's the hardest thing to do. I've had to do it. I've, I've recently had to do it. 
I've recently had to go to someone that I felt did something that was really wrong. And in the process, I had to look at my own behavior, my own response, my own way of doing things and be willing to go to them and say, I was wrong for what I did. It's not an issue of what you did. It's an issue of what I have responded, how I have done these things. I'm willing to do that. That is the hardest thing we can do. It's tough, but I will tell you this, it's also freeing. It's also freeing. And and it, it can only come when we truly trust the Lord. Do we? It's kind of like we go back. Do we believe when we're living in the last days? Well, here's my question to you, the second one. Do you believe the Lord will be good to his promise that he sees everything, he knows everything, he will make every wrong right, that he will do that when he chooses to do it? Do we trust him enough? That's the question. Do we trust him enough to lay our emotions, our feelings, our desire for justice aside? I wasn't shaking a fist at anybody over here, okay? I was doing the preacher thing, all right? <laughs> do we desire? I mean, are we willing to do that? That's just, that's, that's a good question. And I think individually, we've got to answer that. I can't answer that for you. But I know for me, I've had to come face to face with it, not just on one occasion, but multiple times in my life where I just had to come to the conclusion that, you know what, I just got to trust the Lord. And, and who knows, maybe in the end, the Lord will show that that person I'm angry at over something, that it wasn't what I thought it was. It was something completely, but only he knows that. I don't know that. And if it wasn't, then he knows and he will deal with it. He will deal with it. Can we trust him enough? Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.